Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. I can't believe I have not taken my jacket off yet just because it's like a winter storm here in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And if you ever wanted a white Christmas, well, it's coming. It's going to be here in Minneapolis slash St. Paul. We're getting a big blast of snow and it's kind of chilly and I'm not taking my jacket off and I have no intention of doing so throughout this show. So anyway... Welcome to the show. It's going to be a wonderful uh, uh, day. I've got David Wheaton coming on in just a minute, and then Dr. Peter Capshaw will be joining me. And then hour two is going to be best-selling author Ace Collins, who's written a book called More Stories Behind the Best-Loved Songs of Christmas. Some of the history of these songs is absolutely amazing. You will love the day and the show. So thanks for joining me. Uh, David Wheaton has been my friend and uh, host of Christian Worldview. You can go to thechristianworldview.org to, of course, learn more about David here, his podcasts, and check out his writing and his books. They're all amazing. And we've been working on the study of the book of Genesis and how it is relevant for today, and we're back at it. David, welcome. Good to be with you, Bill, and I'm experiencing that snowstorm, too. I and, bet. Uh, you Usually we don't have to uh, dream about white Christmases in Minnesota, <laughs> although it's getting pretty close this year where you're going to have a green one. Yeah, it was pretty close, but uh, we're we're now certain we're going to have a white Christmas, for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely, that's yeah. a good thing. I heard uh, anywhere from 12 to 15 to 20 inches of oh. snow. Oh, wow, I did not hear that. Yeah. Well, I better get the snowblower out Yeah, then. definitely fire that one up. Let's uh, spend some time talking about this uh, amazing book, Genesis. It's so relevant for today, and I think the last time we talked, we were... Let's see, I think we were in Genesis hmm, 34 and 35, according to my notes. Does that sound about right? That That is correct. And Bill, we've been doing this all year. I know we have. It's been amazing. We've been spent a whole year doing this, and we're 34, 35 chapters in, and it's been just an amazing time to to go over these incredible the history of mm-hmm. the how God established the institutions and that are still in effect today and how relevant it is all for today that— Things that took place five, six thousand years ago um, are still just as relevant. So anyway, last time in Genesis 34 and 35, um, this is when Jacob had brought his family back from Haran. Remember, he had gone off to find a wife, and he had come back with four wives, and then he had to see his brother Esau, and that was going to be a really unknown encounter because, remember, Esau wanted to kill him for stealing the birthright and the blessing from his father Isaac. So he comes back into the land. The, the reunion with with uh, with Esau goes well, fortunately for him. But now they they just get back in the land, and now you know Jacob's got eleven sons now, lots of flocks. He's become quite wealthy after God blessing him so much. And o- almost uh, in, in short order, um, they're in the land. But of course, now this isn't the Jewish people's land yet. It's still the land of Canaan. So you have to remember, they don't own land yet. They're just kind of tenting out, so to speak, mm-hmm. in the land that God has promised to them. And they come in, and one of the uh, the daughters, or the, the 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 girls of the land who are not followers of God, and one of their sisters named Dinah had gone out to kind of see them and talk with them and so forth. And one of the men 
of these tribes in the area of the Hivites named Shechem fell in love with one of Jacob's sons, one of Jacob's daughters named Dinah, and he actually raped her. And it was a horrible crime, but he just loved her so much that he wanted to marry her, but they didn't want to intermarry. Uh, Jacob and his sons realized the the risk of intermarrying with those who didn't follow God, and they knew that would compromise them. And so they were so enraged about this rape of their sister that they deceived Shechem and his tribe, the Hivites, into saying, okay, we'll intermarry with you uh, if you get circumcised like we are. That's a sign of our covenant with God. And they, the Hivites gladly agreed to this, but they did this, the Jacob's sons did this to deceive them and to destroy them. So after they're healing from circumcision, they went in, at least two of his sons went in and, and basically slaughtered every male uh, in in this in this in this family, this tribe of of Shechem and Hamor, and it immediately as they come back in the land, Jacob's fla- uh, family is, is like persona non grata now. You know they they've they've gone way disproportionate punishment beyond what just Shechem deserved alone for his rape of their sister Dinah. So now Jacob's back in the land, his family is despised. Uh, this is why the Bible says, why God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Uh, they went way overboard. Jacob has to move his family because there's going to be retribution. So it's, it's not a great re-entry uh, into the promised land, and that's what we talked about last time. Mm-hmm. All right, let's jump into uh, chapter 36 of Genesis, and um, why are we going to focus on the lineage of Esau? Yeah, and this is an interesting chapter because— it all of a sudden goes into great details, detail about Esau's family. And you think, well, Esau's really not the point of the story in Genesis. Mm-hmm. It's the line of Abraham, and then Isaac, and now Jacob, and now Jacob's sons, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel. This is where the history is. But there's a whole chapter spent uh, in Genesis, Genesis 36, on the lineage of Esau. And remember, Esau was the older brother to Jacob, who didn't get, who gave up his birthright, you know, when he was hungry, when he came from hunting, when they were younger, and then Jacob stole uh, the the blessing, deceived his father Isaac into getting the, the firstborn blessing. And so Esau hated him for that and wanted to kill him for that. But they have this reconciliation when Jacob comes back into the land, Esau forgives him very graciously. But now that Jacob's back in the land, both of these brothers have done very well in life. You know, ranching or or, or shepherding was the was a big um, way of, of gaining wealth at the time, and both of them had huge flocks and so forth, and they became so big that they, there wasn't enough land to contain both of their, their, their farming operations. And so Esau moves out of Canaan, moves out of the Promised Land southeast, over the Jordan southeast of the Dead Sea. And that's significant because, again, it's the Promised Land for Jacob and his descendants. So God sort of ordains or or moves the heart of Esau to actually get out of the, the land, which was promised earlier. And it goes into saying in Genesis 36 that Esau says this, Esau is Edom. And if you read forward in Scripture, you're going to realize that the descendants of Esau are, are the Edomites, and they would become this great enemy, this 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 thorn in the side of Israel all along. They're always fighting and warring and so forth. And it really goes back to the the rocky relationship that that Jacob had with his brother Esau. And there's one more thing, I think, to note in this chapter, in the lineage of Esau. They start going over who the, the, the chiefs of the tribe of Esau. It seems sort of irrelevant. But then it gets to later in the chapter, and it says, 
it gives this list of the kings who reigned in the land of Edom. And it says this. Now, notice the repeating word. Now, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the sons of Israel. So in other words, Edom got kings before Israel got kings. Israel sort of copied Edom and the other other nations around them. To, they wanted the king like the rest of them had. Now, listen to what happens to all these kings. Bala, the son of Baor, king of Eden, uh, he, he died. And then Jobab, the son of Zerah, became king in his place. Then Jobab died. And then Husham of the land of Temanites, he became king. And then Husham died. And then Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian, he became king. And the name of his city was Avith. And then Hadad died. And it goes on like this, Bill, for another six or seven kings. And the reminder here, what's so relevant for today is, everyone dies. Even the great and powerful ones among us, the kings, uh, the, the presidents, the prime ministers in, in our fallen world, it's a good reminder that we're all going to die someday. It says in Hebrews 9, just as it is appointed for, for men once to die, and after this comes judgment. And then here's verse 28, Hebrews 9. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await for him. And as we come up upon Christmas, Bill, this is the good news of Christmas, that we're all going to die. And everyone listening to our conversation today, it could be tonight, it could be next week, it could be 50 years from now, but we're all going to die as these kings of Edom die. Mm -hmm. But the good news is this is why God sent his son into the world on Christmas as a human baby to grow up and live a perfect, sinless life. So he could be our representative and he could be a perfect lamb of God that could be offered on that cross to satisfy God's wrath over our sin and satisfy God's justice over our sin. He could be our substitute. He could die where we deserve to die. Christ is going to die in our place and, and, and take the punishment we deserve and, and, and cause God to be satisfied over our sin, that our, the justice has been, has been served on our sins against God. And this is why Christmas is such good news, because we're all going to die but God sent his son Jesus into the world so we didn't have to die spiritually and and be punished forever in hell. Jesus paid that punishment for us. Now, David, this could be the moment for somebody right now that they are hearing this broadcast and they're realizing that they are not right with God. They have not repented of their sin. They have not invited Jesus, this Savior of the world, into their, into their heart and made a decision to be a follower of Jesus. Now it could be the day, it could be your day of salvation, December 23rd, 2020, the most important day of your life could be right now. You are absolutely correct. That mm -hmm. is the most important issue in all of life. You know, we get distracted easily by all the comings and goings and shopping and all the distractions, Santa mm -hmm. and the elves and everything else at Christmas. But the bottom line is the most important issue is this. How do we, how can we as sinful human beings be made right with this holy God who created us? And you just explained how, that God sent him into the world. Uh, he came to die for our sins and that we must receive that by faith. We must believe in who Christ is. He's a perfect son of God. And we must believe by faith what he did in the cross actually paid the, the penalty for our sins. And when we do that, God forgives us of our sins. He makes us right with him, and mm -hmm. he promises eternal life for us in heaven. What amazing good news. Oh, just this conversation makes me so happy, David. This is exactly well, what I wanted to do today. <laughs> 
Well, I'm just, glad we got to it, and it's kind of through an obscure passage that all these kings die of, right. of Edom. Well, how does that relate to today? Well, it's very relatable because we're all going to die too, yes. and we need to get right with God before we do. Yes. Let me take a little break. David Wheaton is my guest. We're going to come back and continue the book of Genesis. We are in chapter 36. When we come back, we're going to get some background on introduction of Joseph in Genesis 37. We're already jumping up to 37. We'll be right back. music. It's the theme song for David Wheaton. Also, you can go to thechristianworldview.org. He's got a brilliant podcast and a radio show, and you can catch that after you've listened to all of my podcasts. That would be uh, the thing to do, thechristianworldview.org. All right, David, let's get back to Genesis 37, maybe a little introduction of Joseph. Yeah, this is um, pretty interesting now because we get into one of the great stories of Scripture, starting in Genesis 37. Um, for the rest of Genesis, Genesis has 50 chapters. Literally, Joseph is going to be the central figure in the rest, in the next 13 chapters mm-hmm. of Genesis, along with Jacob, his father Jacob. And, and this is, I mean, just an unbelievable story of twists and tor- turns, but it all goes back again to that theme we've been talking about for, for many, many weeks, is that in the midst of our sinful and fallen world where all these bad things take place, God is sovereign, and He's working His plan toward toward an end in a very you know unusual way. Sometimes that's what we're going to see in the in the life of Joseph. It's just an amazing what what happens to this young man. So Joseph is the the second youngest of Jacob's sons. Joseph was was born to Rachel. Remember, Jacob, Rachel was the wife that uh, Jacob really loved, and but but couldn't have children with her. Finally, uh, she had Joseph. He was born when Jacob was serving his uncle Laban in Haran, back in the kind of the family hometown area outside the land of Canaan. And so Jacob, Joseph lived lived his first six years in Haran, and then they came back into the promised land, remember, met Esau and so forth, and then they've been living there for 11 years old. So the story picks up in Genesis 37 that Joseph is now 17 years old. And it's just interesting as you read the first couple of verses, and I'll do that, of Genesis 37, it, it really gives you a behind-the-curtain look at what the family dynamic and relationships are like. It says, Joseph, when he was 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. Remember, he had, he had 11 brothers while he was still a youth, 17 years old, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. Those are his father's wives. Uh, he remembers he had four wives. And Joseph brought back while they're pasturing, a bad report about his brothers to their father, Jacob. And now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his other sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a multicolored tunic or coat. And his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms." And this, again, just pulls back the curtain on uh, what the inner workings of this family. Now, we don't know if Joseph gave this bad report or, or what his brothers were doing, whether they were drinking and carousing or womanizing. We don't know what they were doing, but he gave his father a bad report, whether it was prompted by the father or without. We don't know what. Did he go and tattle on them? We just don't know. 
But we do know that Jacob, it says specifically right here, loved and favored Joseph more than all of his other sons. And we're not really sure why, but he loved him so much that he made him a special coat. And we've all heard of, you know, the many color dream coat and the, the play on that and so forth. Well, this, this coat he gave to him was more than just a special coat. It was really a sign that Jacob, the father, uh, desired uh, Joseph to be the future leader of the family. And he was one of the youngest in the family, which which should have gone to the firstborn, which was Reuben. Uh, so again, Jacob is dealing with issues of who is the firstborn in the family now with his own sons, which is sort of ironic because he dealt with that with his older brother Esau. And his brothers were intensely jealous and resentful. And actually, it says in this passage, they hated him and could not speak to him mm. on friendly terms. This wasn't just a mild dislike. They <laughs> oh, couldn't even sure. speak to him yeah. on friendly terms. And so I think the relevance for this is, you know, as parents, we need to be really careful and really self-aware. We can really deceive ourselves on this about favoring one child over another. I mean, it's natural to have favorites. I will say that. We always like the child who is the well-behaved one who does good to us and so forth. And not everyone's going to be the same. But this story is going to show how the favoritism of Jacob and then the wrong response to it by the brothers, the resentment and the hatred, is going to lead to all manner of really horrific things. Um, and we're going to see that coming up in the story, how they're going to sell him into slavery and so forth. And it's really uh, a really terrible thing that this anger and resentment leads to. So, David, did Joseph help at all by kind of uh, rubbing in, <laughs> telling his brothers about his dreams? That's kind of a rubbing it in a little bit, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, so right after this passage, we find out as much as brothers dislike him because he's the favored one. Well, then we find that Joseph is is telling his brothers these these two dreams he's having about the fact that, you know, I, I saw the sun and the moon. I had this dream, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars. They were bowing down to me, and the sun and the moon were his father and his mother. The 11 stars were his brothers. So he's having these dreams about— uh, you know, these sheaves growing in a field and how his sheaf stands up and all the other 11 sheaves around it bow down to it. It's an obvious reference to the fact that Joseph was going to become prominent in the family and the brothers are going to be bowing down to him, which actually is going to happen in the story. So God is giving these dreams to Joseph and he's relating them to his, to his brothers and his family. And you know, either Joseph was just incredibly naive or didn't realize, you know, how much his brothers resented and hated him, or maybe he didn't care what they thought of them, or maybe he just felt these 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 dreams were too important not to mention to him. I mean, Jacob, his father, actually rebukes him for telling him for telling these dreams. But it also says this: when the father rebukes him, the fa- it says to him, his father Jacob kept the matter in his mind. In other words, he thought, yeah, he shouldn't be saying this, but is there something more to what he's saying to us that we're all going to bow down to him someday? Well, we're going to find out in about you know t- five, ten chapters from now, that's exactly what takes place, yeah. is that he goes down to Egypt and, of course, rises to the top. And I don't want to give away the end of the story, but this will, this is like, this is like prophecy that's going to come true, and but it only makes his brothers hate him more when not only is he the favored one, but now he's telling them dreams about how they're going to bow down to him. I don't think he was rubbing it in. I think he was maybe a little naive or just this was such an important message that uh, he felt them that they should respond the right way to it. But they certainly didn't. Mm-hmm. David, why is it so danger- dangerous for us to harbor jealousy and resentment? Well, 
you know, what we sow inside of our hearts, you know, has an outworking. It, it, it does kind of come out. So if we, if we hold resentment, resentment and bitterness and jealousy inside of our heart or hatred, you know, if that, if that is left unconfessed and unrepented of, it eventually leads to hurting us, you know, just internally, spiritually, but it also can lead to violence and murder. And this is what is attempted in the life of Joseph when he is sent by his father, Jacob, to go visit the brothers. Father sends him out, go bring a report back on your your brothers who are pasturing the flock. And as the brothers see him coming, it says in, in verse 18 that they plotted against Joseph to put him to death. I mean, th- this this Oof. anger and this resentment, I mean, is simmering so strong. They wanted no part of him and said, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer, right? Yeah. Now then come and let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say a vicious animal devoured him. Then we will see what will become of his dreams. I mean, this is almost like a Hollywood movie with drama and, and you know, this, this really rank hatred, simmering resentment that's going to lead to murder. And, and an unbelievable sequence, Bill, is about to happen where the, the older brother's treatment of their younger brother uh, and these are the same brothers, of course, that killed the the whole tribe of Shechem and so forth. They're about to do something uh, equally unthinkable and and sell their own brother into slavery down into Egypt when he was just 17 years old. And uh, this is just an unbelievable turn of events in this in this story in this family, this hatred for Joseph that they have. Mm-hmm. You know, David, we've only got a couple minutes left. I don't know if we can uh, do much more uh, today. Uh, we might have to revisit this lesson next time uh, we have this conversation. I, I think that's a good idea because the story of them selling yes. Joseph into slavery, read between the lines there and just think about what Joseph must have been thinking as he was hauled off yes. by himself as a teenager to go down to Egypt, seeing his brothers go further and further into the distance, going into a land that he did not know away from his family. Just imagine that. But it also there's another thing to think about here too is that you know these brothers who have this who have this hatred inside of them they're sons of a father who worships God. You know, you think about it the mm-hmm. sin nature is so strong in every one of us that even being raised with Jacob, one of the patriarchs, one that feared and followed God and one that no doubt had taught his sons about God. But it came to this that his brothers were conspiring to to kill and then sell one of their brothers into slavery. It just goes to show you that as parents, we have children. You know, there's no such thing as God doesn't have grandchildren. We must teach our kids the gospel, the word of God, and pray for them that uh, the hardness of their heart will be broken down by God so they would repent of their sin, see their sin, repent of it, and trust in Christ as their Savior and follow God with their own whole heart, because that wasn't what was taking place in the family of Jacob at this time. Yeah, I just want to make sure I took the last 30 seconds of our time together to wish you and your family a Merry Christmas, and then also to say happy birthday to your dad, who has his birthday on Christmas Day. Thank you so much for doing that, Bill. We are so blessed. Uh, My father turns 89, and uh, we're so blessed to have he and my mother not only still alive, but just being the great spiritual examples and influence they've been in our lives throughout our entire lives. All right, David, we'll see you next time.
we are back. Thank you for uh, joining me today. And, and thank you for allowing my voice and my words into your home and your car, your earbuds, or your headphones. Every day I want to deliver the very good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think in a world of 7.5 billion people, I'm not guessing you need another opinion but the truth of God's Word. So I pray every day I handle it well. I also love spending a little part of your day with you and enjoy that time of fellowship. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So I hope you find lots of good cheer each afternoon with me. I, I appreciate you. I I fully understand the amount of things competing for your attention every day. So thank you from the, the, the deepest molecules of my heart for listening and being an amazing supporter of Faith Radio. We've had an incredible year, thanks to you, and I'm even more aware at Christmas time how many organizations and worthy ministries reach out to you. They, they want your attention and support, so thank you for being the consistent you that you are, the generous you, the caring you, the thinking you. Amazing questions I get throughout uh, every show. And I, I appreciate all the encouragement that you give me throughout the year. I, I appreciate the correction when it comes in because I realize I make mistakes. And I appreciate the love and the grace you show me. It's wonderful. So um, Merry Christmas to you. And thank you for um, being amazing because you are. All right. Uh, I think we've got Dr. Peter Kapsner on the line. Peter, are you there? I am here, Bill. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So Good. kind of a unusual connection today. Yeah, it's odd. I don't know. What was going. Maybe, you know, in Minneapolis area, we're experiencing a pretty major blizzard. Maybe technology just decides to hang it up for the day. Yeah. You know, when the blizzard come in, uh, everything freezes up quick. So maybe that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yeah. So a couple of things I wanted to talk about. One is... Uh, this came up in Bible study this morning, and it was a devotional uh, from Dallas Willard, and he said, the ultimate freedom we have as human beings is the power to select what we will allow our minds to dwell on. Chew on that wow. one. Yeah. Theology so, so boy. read that one more time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good quote. I like the that. Al- yeah, the ultimate freedom we have as human beings is the power to select what we will allow our minds to to dwell on. Wow, that and is, uh, yeah, go ahead. It just goes on about the primary focus of Satan's effort to defeat God's purposes for mankind. This is the, the basic idea behind all temptation. God is presented as depriving us of his, of his commands of what is good. So as a result, we think we better take matters into our own hands and act contrary to what he has said. This image of God leads to our pushing him out of our thoughts and placing ourselves on the throne. Boy, well, you know, as always, Dallas Willard is, is coming to play, right? I mean, he just, uh, there, there's so many insights he has about um, human behavior, the nature of sin, and, and the nature of God. And and I think that, that first part of the quote that you read there, Bill, I think some Christians, and, and I, I've fallen into this category at certain times in my life, sort of just assume that we are kind of these uh, passive recipients of whatever God is up to. You know, we, th- we think about God's sovereignty, and I think sometimes we forget that somewhere in the mystery of, of God's sovereignty and our own free expression and free choice, 
uh, lies lies a paradox that that's actually true too. Where, however else we understand God's sovereignty, He doesn't seem to infringe upon the free choices of human beings, and and that's pretty clear in the scriptures. Where in Philippians two, it, it says that we are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, for God is at work in us to will and to act according to His good purposes. And in in all of that, you see sort of this dual agency, meaning that. I am an agent in my own salvation on some kind of level, meaning that I have to say yes to it. I have to enter into it. I have to engage with the great gift of salvation that is given. I don't save myself, but neither am I saved without some sort of active participation, yes, whatever it is. So, so if God is busy setting all things right in this world uh, as both a reality and our present, but as sort of a, a, a prefiguring of what is to come, we work out our salvation. And, and one of the ways in which that happens then is how we choose to think about things in this world mm-hmm. and, and what we choose to dwell on in this world. And, and I, was, uh, I was looking a little bit at the Philippians passage, Philippians 4 earlier today, where it talks about whatever is right and whatever is good and whatever is noble and whatever is trustworthy. And, and this whole list that Paul has uh, about, around these things, let your mind dwell on these things, right? That he says, these are the things to dwell upon. And again, it's an invitation. Maybe we can talk more about this in a second, but, but it's an invitation to let your very thought life be shaped through both the active choice of what you think about, as then also God is at work kind of constantly forming and reforming who you are as a person. So it really is an incredible free choice that we have in terms of what we want to think about. And then as we think about those things, stuff happens in our life, and God can be at work in the midst of that. Mm-hmm. Peter, what about just as a foundational idea, when we think about sanctification, and that would be a saint, separation, and holy, all right? So the New Testament um, says this is someone who's been set apart or separated for God and for holiness. So although Christians often think of themselves as sinners, the New Testament really never treats them as anything other than saints. Yeah. When Paul addresses even the unruly church at Corinth, he said to the church of God that is at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. I, I think that that very definition of saint versus sinner, it, it doesn't mean sin isn't present in our life, but I think the New Testament is extremely clear, Bill, that when we say yes to following Jesus and when we bend our knee and, and accept that gift of salvation— that there becomes a different kind of power at work in our life. And, and it is the power of being a person who actually is authentically, increasingly consistent with God's kingdom, meaning the very way that I, I view the world and view the people around me begins to shift and, and change. And so going back to that Philippians 4 and letting your mind dwell on this stuff, when, when Paul is writing Philippians, it, it's always helpful to remember that as he's writing Scripture, he's not just sitting back sort of in his you know, theological study you know, somewhere and deciding, gosh, what should I write about today? He's, <laughs> he's actually, mm-hmm. you know, addressing certain circumstances in churches. And in that Philippians passage, he's actually uh, addressing a dispute between uh, multiple people in the church that needs to be settled. And, and he's saying, when you're thinking about the person next to you and around you with whom you have a dispute, why don't you spend some time remembering the really amazing qualities about them? Why don't you spend some time thinking about what's honorable and good and trustworthy and excellent? about that person because they are a, a saint, having been saved from the hand of God, that they too are, are part of the same fellowship that you're a part. And so instead of walking in all of the silly divisions you're walking in, Philippians Church, you are a new priesthood of believers together. You 
are a new set of saints set apart together to live a different way of life. And gosh, you know, we could dig into that much further. But if, if you think about probably your friends and my friends and certainly students that I teach, one of the most consistent things they do report about life in the church is how often we divide and, and end up having strife and gossip and division uh, among us. And, and we're just we're called to something entirely different. And, and we're called to be a set-apart people whose way of life is constantly being formed by, by God's work among us. So there, there's so much there that we could mine into uh, for sure. But the people listening that have said yes to following Jesus, mm-hmm. you and I, we've both said yes to following Jesus. We are, we're saints. It doesn't mean we're perfect, of course, but it does mean there's a different power at work in us. Yeah, there was a great uh, illustration by a guy named Rupert Higgins, and he said it's a little bit like uh, the difference between getting married as a fact and becoming a good spouse as a process. Yeah. Oh boy. That see, and and I think if we even spend any time over over Christmas right now thinking about those fellow believers with whom we're in conflict, and sometimes as close as our nearest family member, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I, I've been I've been talking with some of my friends, and there's so many different approaches to the to the holiday season coming up, and there's it's exposing a lot of divisions among families. What if we just sat back and did Philippians four during this whole season and and saw each other differently and began to heal some of the divisions? between us, because it is, it's, it, I can't think of a more important call than believers to begin to heal with one another in this time. Mm-hmm. Peter, I'd love to stay a little bit focused on, we get to choose what our minds dwell yeah. on. Uh, yeah. there, that is, I think, a very significant uh, point of discussion for not only today, but for tonight and for the coming weekend and the days ahead and the new year, because there's been a lot of things going on in 2020 that have given us things that have gotten into our heads that we've dwelled on and dwelt on and thought, this is not good for me anymore to be thinking this way. Yeah, clearly as it comes to, let's just take one of the things, right? We could, we could talk about the social unrest. We could talk about the political divisions and the strife in our country and, and uh, the back and forth between whether there's fraud or not fraud. And we, we could talk about, of course, the virus as well. And I don't know about you, but as I as I let my mind dwell on the virus, for example, and, and I've done a bit of that over the past couple of weeks and thinking about the impact it's had on people close to me, and I'm sure there's listeners that have lost loved ones, you know, to the extent that I let my mind dwell on those things, and, and not just as a passing sort of um, know that, it, that it's there and, and deal with the reality of it, but, but to dwell on something really means to, to make a, a home with it, right, where my entire day is consumed with something uh, related to the virus or, again, maybe the social unrest or the division. And as, I, as I'm making my home, as I'm letting my, my mind dwell in that place and, and arranging the furniture of my heart to accommodate mm. all of these things, I'll tell you what, it's not like I don't go to bed feeling super peaceful at night. I'm not, <laughs> you know, so that was a great use of my day, right? I feel yeah. awesome right now, and, and there's no anxiety anywhere. <laughs> what is that statistic that is like 90% of the things you worry about never happen? Yeah, of and I course. But I, I don't know if you're you do you project all the different scenarios that could or could not happen, and then try to figure out a solution to each one. Then thinking somehow you have more control over a situation. How silly is that? <laughs> Gee, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never done anything like that. <laughs> oh man, right? I'm reading I just, your I'm reading your diary right now. You totally are. Yeah, that that was yesterday and the day before that all came out. But yeah, it was uh, I, that certainly. In, in one of my um, areas of life, I, I've run a business for the last 16 years, and I'll tell you what, I mean, I can sit with spreadsheets, and I can sit with um, sales projections, and I can sit with um, any number 
you know, to, to fuss around with over and over again. And finally, when I get the numbers to line up right in the spreadsheet that projects out even as far as 12 months, you know, then I think it's great. And then the next and next morning I wake up and something has changed and there's some variable that has happened that I didn't account for in my spreadsheet and now I got to do it all over again and I got to I got to recalibrate absolutely everything and it's this never ending process of worry and concern and trying to control the variability of the future and and I think you know Bill with, with my young people in classes right they're 18 to 22 years old typically speaking and and among the different things that characterize them and, and there's so many good things that characterize them there are these just lovely beautiful young people but but fear of the future uh is certainly a big part of that puzzle and and that may manifest itself in terms of will i ever find the relationship that i want right will will i get married will i ever get out of my crushing $500,000 student loans or whatever that happens to be. <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and so many questions, and, and we do try to control the future, but the problem is the future is just, there, there's one, it's just one big variable. And, and I'm afraid, well, here we go, and I'm afraid, I'm afraid going into 2021 that we sort of all assume as, as the calendar flips over to a new year, oh, 2020 is behind us. I mean, how much have we been hearing that, right? We just, right. we got to dump it all into 2020, so right. 2021 will be fine. It's entirely possible 2021 might be worse than 2020. You know, I, I, I'm not saying that it's going to be. Thanks but for I, really encouraging yeah. today, Peter. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. But, you know, they'll bring, bring that hope uh, on that. But the point is, is it does, how do we anchor ourselves in any present moment on behalf of the future? What are we dwelling on? What are we letting our mind attend to? Uh, because the future, we don't know what's going to happen in 2021. Yeah. And if we look at the circumstances to fix it all, it might not happen. Yeah. But if we are following Christ and we are set apart and, and because we are called saints, we're, we, you know, we want to pursue holiness. So as believers, we need to be aware of where we are trying to take control of the situation that yes. God should be taking control of and that we should be aware of our sin and we should kill it. Because if we don't kill it, it will kill us. For sure. Yep. No, that, I think that's really well said. Well, I, I don't know if that's really well said, but, you know, it's the whole idea that as, you know, you become a new believer, you should be more aware of your 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 sin and that you're this, the slavery to sin has been broken and that you are right. now a new creation in Christ. Right. Yeah, there's so much language in the scriptures, right, about uh, God knows the, the very hairs in your head. And consider the lilies of the field. Um Solomon dressed in all of his royal robes doesn't have the worth of even them, and yet God cares for them year after year after year. And it doesn't mean that bad things aren't going to happen, but it's kind of funny. We're, we're 2,000 years after the birth of our Savior, and yet God's kingdom still remains. I mean, God's kingdom is still going, and, and one thing we can be certain of in 2021 is God's kingdom is going to remain. So let's let our hearts and minds attend to that, regardless of what comes. Mm-hmm. Let me take a little break. Peter Kapsner is my guest. We'll be right back. Normally, Peter and I do our prayer series on Wednesdays. And as far as I know, today is Wednesdays. We're just uh, not doing that today, but we will resume that and soon. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the show. So glad to be talking to Peter Kapsner. We usually have a series on Wednesday. We had a series on salvation, which was a ton of fun. And then the prayer series is every bit as fun. Uh, Peter, I, I don't know about you. I've been learning a lot from both series. Yeah, I really have, Bill. Uh, there's uh, there's so many just dimensions of, of life in God's kingdom, whether it's prayer or salvation. So many scripture passages that the listeners text in about. Uh, I love being a part of Guy Talk again on Thursdays on your show because the listeners just come in with so many questions. And so often I sit there and say, oh, well, there's another passage of scripture that I'm not terribly familiar <laughs> with, you know, among the, the 30,000 or so verses. And it's it's really been delightful to have the guests that we've had and to listen to them. And, and you know, it, it's been more than just information. I, I know that for me and, and I think for you, there's been some practices and some some growth in some of those areas that's really tricky. Prayer life's not easy, and, and they've really done a good job with that. Mm-hmm. John uh, 316, of course, one of the most popular verses in Scripture, really talks about the Savior. Um, and you think of the Jesus coming into the world, and he be, and the Word became flesh, mm-hmm. and it is absolutely amazing to think that you are in heaven living uh, on earth now as a uh, fully human, fully divine uh, person and God, and going through everything that he endured because he came after the one thing that he wanted, which was us, that he would die for our sins and give us uh, eternal life for those who would repent and come to faith. Yeah, it's. I think when we go back to what we're talking about, what, what do we want to let our minds dwell upon, right? And and we absolutely can choose to, to make a home with fear uh, over the next couple of weeks as we head into 2021, or we could uh, decide to let our minds make a home with what you just described, mm-hmm. which is what, what Jesus did the 2,000 years ago, that the power of which continues today. That I think that, among the many things that is so amazing to me about what happened 2,000 years ago, is that same power that happened at the cross in which the power of sin was broken, it's, it has rippled out some 2,000 years and, you know, thousands and thousands of, of geographic miles to any corner of the earth that wants it. And, and he continues to have this beautiful invitation to say, you too can have everlasting life. And, and I think what I love about that John 3.16 passage, Bill, and that, that phrase everlasting life, and I know we've talked about these things before, but I think it's really helpful to, to keep them again in our minds is that that word everlasting has an idea of indestructibility with it. It, it, It's less about a timeless existence in heaven, though it clearly includes all of our infinite heavenly future. But everlasting means that it's just, it's durable, it's indestructible, it it cannot be assailed, it cannot be broken. And then you you pair that with the word life, which is one of the, the most popular words in the New Testament. I think it's 122 times this word life shows up in the Greek language in the New Testament. And uh, it literally means the kind of life that God himself enjoys and also then imparts to his creation that he loves. And, and so when you think, of, however else you imagine or conceive of what the life of God must be like in this, in this beautiful, I've, I've heard it described, this, this Trinitarian dance in heaven between the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and the life that exists among them, he actually turns and imparts that kind of life to us. And so you, you put that together about the, you know, God so loving the world that he sent his only son to whoever leans into him or believes will not perish, but have an indestructible kind of life that God himself enjoys that, that can exist in part in, in, in the brokenness and frailty of this world. But it's also a deposit of the fullness of that life that is to come in the next world. So whatever else we're going to let our mind dwell on over the, the, the week as we prepare for 2021. Mm-hmm. I, I just think every time that that fear comes in, I think to dwell on that phrase, everlasting life, the indestructible ways of life that he enjoys, 
then the indestructible means that no matter what happens in 2021, we can be certain of a few things. Mm-hmm. And when I think of what are you allowing your mind to dwell on, I think of Psalm 119, verse 11, that says, I have treasured your word mm-hmm. in my heart so that I may not sin against you. So you're treasuring God's word in your heart. If, is that what you're going to allow your mind to dwell on is God's precious word so that you may uh, not sin against him? It's a beautiful thing. That is a beautiful thing. I, you know, I bet if, and, and we won't do this today, I know, but I bet if, if some show we opened up the text line, right, to all the listeners and said, can you give a, a testimony or an example of, of a season of time, whether it be a day or a week uh, or maybe a year, where you just really were treasuring God's Word, both, you know, the, the, the words of, it, of, of the Psalms, for example, or the words of Scripture in your heart. And what might that do to sort of the, the persistent life of sin that I know we also all struggle with this side of it? And, and how does that um, begin to change and, and rearrange things in our heart about that? Because sin is a power, clearly, that's active at work in our life, but there is a power that's greater than that sin. And, and one of the things we are actually called to do in the working out of our salvation is to, is to treasure those things, to learn to dwell on those things. And I've been getting into the Scripture more than just the verse that I take to my steering wheel. And, and I want right. to have a life where I take my, take my steering wheel. But I know that as I get immersed in the Scripture and as I listen to people who are really, um, they, they carefully wield God's beautiful text, and, and they do so in ways that can really open up the mind and heart, there's something there you can almost sense that power work. Like the, somehow sin begins to diminish, and it's not overnight, but it certainly does wage war, you know, against the members of our flesh to use some of the language of the text. Mm-hmm. A listener jumped in, Peter, with this. I hear people say we must repent, but repentance granted by God as well? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a classic uh, classic question, right? That there, there would certainly be some theological traditions that would say, that um, the only agent that, that does anything at all is, um, is God. And so even our very capacity to repent is, um, is based on whether God allows us to repent kind of thing. Yeah, you know, I, I, you might have some scriptural evidence for that, and I'm sure there's going to be people from certain uh, traditions that, uh, that would take me to task in some of those things. And this is a good example, Bill, of, uh, of a theological idea that we probably need to re- write in, in pencil versus pen, because there really is very good evidence um, for, for a lot of different sides of this. But I think the clearest evidence in the text is that there is some measure of, of human responsibility for the response to the sovereign gift of salvation that God has offered. And, and I don't... Um, and yet, we still need God to help in that entire process on some level. But the, the gift uh, for God to do it all would mean that we're sort of just robotically responding without any free will. And, and, and if God's kingdom is first and foremost marked by love, which is this other-centered compassion and, and capacity, um, and, and it's a choice to love on, on some kind of level, then you, you have to have some measure of human agency. But boy, we probably need at least an hour to kind of go through that one. It's sort of the classic question yeah. uh, about who's responsible for the repentance on that. And there's a lot of different views on that. Yeah, good point. Another uh, listener jumped in with, uh, we need to take our finite minds off what seems to be impossible in this season of COVID and have the mind of Christ, who's in all things are possible God. Let's yeah. renew our minds and imitate Christ. According to Scripture, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus from Philippians 2.5. Yeah, for sure. I just think that that is that that's the invitation. That's what we've been talking about this entire half an hour, right? And yep, what do we exactly. what do we let our minds dwell yep. on? And I think 
that doesn't mean we can just sort of, you know, snap our fingers in our mind. If we think hard enough, we're going to think COVID away. You know, that's not what we're talking about here. But what, what we are talking about is our, our very response to be able to shine the light to COVID. And I know we've only got about, uh, about a minute left or so. But I think about um, Julian of Norwich back during the time of the European plague when things were so awful and everybody was hunkered down in their villages. And yet she got anchored in something different, Bill. And she walked out of the, the, the house of her little hut there and she began to declare to the village around her, all will be well and all will be well and all manner of things shall be well. And mm-hmm. that didn't mean that people weren't going to die from the plague. But it did mean that even in death, there is the possibility of life. And I think that's where we need to let our minds dwell during the season. Mm-hmm. Peter, thanks so much for uh, being such a, a great friend and, and uh, friend of the show. Just yeah, really such a delight. You. Yeah, yeah no, Yeah, you too. And the listeners, it's, just been a, it's been a great 2020 in that way, Bill. I'm looking forward to a lot more in 2021. Yeah. Well, Merry Christmas to you and your family. You too. Thanks, Peter. Um, yep. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, Ace Collins is going to join us. He has dug deep to uncover the... True stories behind your favorite Christmas songs. And we'll explore how these songs came into being and discover a much deeper appreciation for these messages of peace, hope, and joy that celebrate the birth of Jesus. That's all coming up next. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.